you to the Trauma-Informed Educators Network podcast. Uh, this podcast is coming out of the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Facebook group. Um, I am so looking forward to talking to people globally about their trauma-informed journey. As the principal of Fall Hamilton Elementary School, a trauma-informed school in Nashville, Tennessee, I have learned that this is not a destination and it truly is a process of learning and, and adjusting. So this podcast will be speaking to guests all over the world about people who are just starting their journeys and people have been on this journey for many, many years. So I hope you enjoy our guests. I hope you learn something just as I am. And welcome to the Trauma Informed Educators Network podcast. All right, I am super excited about episode number 41. Today's podcast is with Jenna White. She's a parent leader who lives in just outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. The mother of two boys, she was always active in schools and parent organizations such as the PTA. When her younger son was profoundly shaped by developmental trauma, she started a journey to become a fierce advocate for trauma-informed schools. Today, she serves in many roles and sits on many committees. She's also an ACE interference trainer for Fairfax County, the only parent leader in the first cohort launched in 1999. She has given almost 50 presentations, most of her own initiatives around trauma locally, statewide, and nationally. Most importantly, her son is now in middle school and is healing and thriving from his trauma while also being a middle school student. Here's what Jenna had to say. So here we are. I cannot wait. Uh, I've been anticipating this uh, episode number 41 with Jenna, who I've been told by many people that I need to talk to uh, because of her work in parent advocacy. And very similarly to last week, I uh, was driving here and hit traffic and then had some technical difficulties, but it's not slowing us down. We are here and I cannot wait uh, for the listeners to hear from you, Jenna. So Jenna, welcome to the Trauma Informed Educators Network podcast. And uh, first question I ask everybody is, tell us the Jenna story. Tell us what you do, why you do it, and all that good stuff. Well, like many um, advocates, this wasn't something that I expected I would be doing. It wasn't something I foresaw I would be doing, really stumbled into this work through my own experiences, specifically uh, with my son. I have two boys but my youngest son was the one that was really um, part of this, this story. So he was born in 2007, which, you know, in the trauma-informed world, that was like ages and ages ago. And um, right away, he started having a lot of difficulties um, as a newborn, as an infant. So sleep problems, feeding problems. As he got older, started picking up on more things. At 18 months, the doctor said, let's get him evaluated for, you know, like a developmental assessment. So we did all of that and the, you know, the team comes in, it's like three or four professionals, they come to your house and they spend a couple hours with him. And at the end they say, gosh, we really don't quite know how to score him. We really aren't fully sure what to do with him, but we agree he could benefit from some services. So that was really positive. We got started um, on that road, but things still um, continued with him, continued to struggle. The older he got turned into more behavioral issues what became apparent as learning issues. And the thing was, you know, along the way, I was a pretty savvy parent. I already had an older child. I knew a lot about mental health. Um, and so I was really very proactive. I was going to the doctor saying, you know, 
something is wrong here or what's wrong here. I need help. He is struggling. We are in crisis. Um, and so I got a lot of referrals. We went to a lot of specialists, a lot of professionals, and it still wasn't fully adding up. And so the other piece to that was, you know, there was some really difficult things going on in our home, which of course I knew about. Um, and when people would ask me, I was pretty open about it. I would, would say some of the things going on. Some of them I wasn't fully aware of in that moment, but still indicated, you know, that there were some, some things going on. And the response I usually got was, it was very empathetic, like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That must be stressful. But now let's get back to the diagnosis checklist, or now let's go back to the other forms. There was never any connection between the two. It was very separate. So fast forward, still having trouble, um, pretty much had extinguished all our options. This poor child is still not sleeping. He's five years old. He's six years old. He can't sleep more than a couple hours at a time. Um, no one is really able to give, to give us any help. I was at a um, special education conference through our school system, and I had gone to it for a couple years. And honestly, I looked at the program and I was like, I've been to most of these sessions and there was a session on childhood trauma. And I was like, well, I haven't been to that session yet. And I felt like, well, that's, that's not us, right? That's things that happen to other people, but let me go to this, this session. And the minute I got there, I can still picture, you know, what that library looked like. I can still picture the, the woman at the podium. And as soon as she started talking about developmental trauma uh, on, you know, that ongoing complex trauma and the impact it has um, on the child, it was like, oh my God, this, you know, it's the light bulb moment that everybody has. And I was like, this is it? Like, this is what we spent seven years looking for? And, you know, you just feel this huge flood of, oh my God, um, you know, there's that guilt and there's that, is my child going to be okay? But then I quickly kind of stood on the edge of all these feelings and I very quickly pivoted to anger. And I was really angry because it was like, but I did all the things, you know, I went to all the places and I did all those interviews and I told people what was going on and nobody ever brought up trauma, right? Nobody ever said your child can't sleep because he's so dysregulated because he doesn't feel safe because he was absorbing everything in your household as baby in the next room. So that, Anger is what really fueled me to feel like I just had this thought of like, I have to tell the other parents, right? Like it felt like this secret thing that wasn't commonly known in, in parenting. And yet here I was this parent who was in crisis for all these years and my child was in absolute crisis. So it just was that thing where you get that fire in your belly of, I have to tell people about this. I didn't really know what that looked like, but that just started me feeling like if, if this happened to us and I was as proactive as I was, then where does that leave other parents, right? Where does that leave other kids who are not getting the help they need? So my really goal at that point was just how can I let other people know about this, about this trauma thing? Um, and then of course, what can we do about it? So in the short term, it was learning everything I could for my own son and then starting to think about um, what are ways in which I can um, reach out to other people who need to hear this, and then what are some ways in which I can start talking to them, basically, um, and, and letting them know about this thing that I felt was kept from me as a parent. 
Um, so that's really what what started this and what still obviously I feel very strongly about it. That was about five years ago. And it's just as these things go, you get started and they grow and you you meet people and things start making connections and they just grow and grow and grow. And now a couple of years later, you start looking back and adding things up and it's like, wow, this is this is really turned into something. Um, this is like a thing now. I mean, isn't it unbelievable? And that fire that you feel in your belly, it, I don't know if you experienced, but to me, it just, mine just keeps getting bigger and bigger and, and uh, more relentless, I think, is, is how I would say, is that the more we know, in the words of, of Dr. Jim Perry, the more we know, the better we do, right? And so I, I, I would love to know, when you went back, right, and you thought about why didn't anybody tell me? Did you have, when did you come to the realization that, wait, maybe they didn't know either? Um, because as an educator, you know, we weren't taught in teacher school about trauma. Thank goodness they teachers are now. Um, but then we weren't. Right. And, and the thing too, was it wasn't just the teachers, it was developmental pediatricians, it was psychiatrists, it was occupational therapists, it was psychologists. I mean, he started in play therapy when he was three or four years old. I mean, he's been in some form of therapy his whole life. So looking beyond education, when you are hitting that many people, and again, none of them are connecting the dots. Um, it's, it's, it's so overwhelming. And just because of some of our own struggles, we didn't have continuous health insurance and different things. So by that time, I did still have relationships with a lot of those providers. You know, it was very fragmented. Um, but yeah, I, I asked myself the same thing. Why would a PhD or someone with a post-PhD, you know, information or, or learning not have this information? And as, as time went on, you know, it, and these experiences add up, right? It, it, it should have been more and more clear. I mean, it was the sort of thing when looking back, you're like, oh my God, I mean, duh, of course this was what was going on. But in the moment when you're in the crisis and you're just so desperate, you know, you can't see forest for the trees. Um, but it, it definitely felt like a, a betrayal looking at the entire medical community, the mental health community, um, before you even get to education, because so much of this was, you know, from birth, until he really even got into the, the school system. So um, I think I have a lot more grace for, for educators than I do for perhaps some of the other professionals. Um, and you know, pediatricians are very quick to dismiss parents. They're very quick to say, babies are hard or babies don't sleep or, or babies don't cry. And you really start to question yourself. You know, is it, is it me? Am I overreacting? Am I just not a good parent? I mean, you just don't, have the support that you need when the people with all the framed things on the wall don't take you seriously repeatedly that really gets into your your psyche and you just where do you go from there there's nowhere to go there's you're out of options um, at that point so that was definitely a, a huge piece of it though was was this awareness um, and and feeling like how do i not only tell other parents but then the people involved in his life. So starting with his teacher, starting with his IEP team, starting with his principal and saying, you know, I just discovered this 
new thing, even though it, it wasn't new, mm -hmm. but saying, you know, can we go on this like journey together? I'll, I'll keep doing like the research and I'll report back to you. Mm -hmm. and, and can we come together and kind of in the lab, which is the IEP room primarily? Um, and can we figure this out? Some people were receptive, some people, you know, weren't as receptive. But um, at that point, when you feel like you have a lead, you know, when it's like you finally start to feel like something works and you start to see models of it happening. I mean, I think it wasn't that long into this when I saw the videos of your school and it was like, this is an actual thing. Like, this is real and this is what we have to do. Uh, but you have to go about kind of creating it for yourself as you go for, for your own child. Well, and isn't it powerful um, knowing that during all of this, Nadine Burke was fighting for the same thing to know that she saw the pushback of the medical community saying, no, 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 no. We're looking at the, just the symptomology. We're not focusing on the cause. Right. And, and I think her push uh, for seeing these screeners and, and, and t talking about uh, the impacts of trauma on health has really been a game changer for a lot. And, and so let's talk about, you went from like, fire in your belly research to, to figuring it out to looking at the impact of family engagement, right? How do we involve families? Because I think, honestly, Jenna, that is such a million dollar question that this work has not addressed nearly deeply enough. Um, and, but you are tackling that, uh, you're tackling that beast. So talk to me about, you know, why you've taken this approach, what you've done, and, and, and why is it so important to look at the family uh, and, and the engagement of that as a piece of moving forward? Yeah, it didn't fully start out that way, right? It's been just a ton of education and learning for myself. And every time I do something, I, I learn something more. But along the way, as I started just talking to as many people as I can and sort of inserting myself, I started through, um, I was familiar with the PTA, you know, as an organization and those structures. So started giving presentations and doing things that way. Um, we have something called a trauma-informed community network here that I kind of just stumbled upon. And so I said to them, hey, um, you know, as a parent, this is, this is my thing now. I've discovered this or I've learned about it. Uh, can I participate? And they said, well, we're not fully set up that way, but let's think about this. And I thought, well, I know the PTA often has different positions in the community, right? We serve in different groups as representatives. So I said, what if I got the PTA to create a position? Could I have like a seat on your group? She said, sure, that would be that would be great. So I, I went to the PTA at our county level to our board and I said, can we create this position? They gave me five minutes to go in and pitch this to them to explain everything about trauma, why I wanted to do this, what it was. So I rambled through my five minutes and then they kind of said, okay, we still don't know what this is, but if you want to go be part of this group, you know, we will, we will sign off on that. So it was really educating them as well as, you know, the, the focus of PTA is advocacy and family engagement. So that was really a, a great learning ground for me of how do I infuse this trauma-informed perspective with the work of a parent group like the PTA that is so focused on family engagement. So that was sort of the, my my toolbox or my, my, my sandbox to start figuring all this out. And along the way, I had to educate them on what this was about, saying, well, I'm representing you in this area, so we need to make sure you kind of know what this is. 
So as I was trying to bring them along, I started learning about what was happening in our school system or what, was, what wasn't happening in our school system. And I, I kind of ran into that same thing um, amongst like our leadership and our central office of, well, we're doing things in the trauma-informed space. Like it's this removed thing somehow, almost like an ivory tower-ish sort of thing, or like this academic maybe distance. And I was like, but wait a second, this, you know, one, there's no awareness of this from families. And this is my child who's been experiencing this. Like, how do we start to bring the, the two ends together? And there was some new staff in this position. And luckily there were people who really got it. And they were like, you're right. Like we have to combine your voice as a parent and as a consumer, right? I mean, we are the customers of our school system, the families, mm-hmm. the children. And it's it, she, they realized, I was very fortunate because I started partnering with some people very early who just got it. And they were like, our, you know, our knowledge and our, our system work with your lived experience and your, your expertise, when you put those two together, what a powerful force that is, right? And when you think about that, that just that sheer advocacy component, the things that we can do as constituents, as consumers from outside the system, you know, we can call our school board, we can email our school board, we can, you know, pick it up and down the sidewalk, we can do all these things that employees often can't do, right? Because it's, it's their job, and they can't always speak up or demand things, right? I mean, it, that just, it just doesn't work that way. So again, you have these two sides of the coin that when you put them together, um, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful partnership. So we started just kind of living that and, and doing it. I started doing presentations where we take a, school, a school-based psychologist or a school-based social worker and myself, and we present together. And even just that experience alone of us creating the presentation and doing the presentation and going out in the community and that entire experience and talking with people together continued to forge this very strong um, alliance, really. And so that movement kind of took on a different shape. It helped them realize that um, advocacy pressure that we can put put on from outside the system as parents. We have a special education PTA in our county. So started working with them and they're very savvy, you know, special education parents really know what they're doing. They're very strong advocates. So started aligning the trauma piece with the special education piece and those advocates. Now you start getting a little bit more sophisticated in how you're advocating and people from within the school system start start to see how we as advocates can really drive forward the agenda, right? So along with that, um, the advocacy piece, the importance of hearing family voices um, has really made me think about, you know, what's my experience, you know, kind of as I become more involved in the movement. Um, how do the concepts of, you know, trust and safety and collaboration relate to me as a as a parent, as opposed to maybe what my son is experiencing or what people are advocating that the students experience. Um, so I, I've kind of had a lot of different things that I've seen and that I've heard. Um, It's kind of led me to a place where I have concerns that in the broader environment, you know, that's still very much of a us versus them. You know, it's the old dichotomy of, you know, the parents say, what's the teacher's fault? And the teachers say, well, it's the parents' fault. You know, if you didn't send them to school this way, we wouldn't have these problems. And the parents feel like, well, if you didn't, you could teach them these things, then I wouldn't see these things at home. And that's such a misguided um, 
an outdated framework and it aligns so strongly with what we need to be doing and what we should be talking about um, in this trauma-informed movement of really looking at the entire ecosystem of a family, right? Not just looking at a child and trying to maybe consider ways in which we might be blaming and shaming parents as we try to support the child. So sometimes it, it feels like the more educators understand trauma, they're thinking, wow, now I really know all the ways the parents have damaged this child and impeded their ability to learn. Well, that, whether you intend to or not, is clearly going to come across to the parent, right? Absolutely. The parent is not going to feel empowered, not going to feel um, in a collaborative and trusting relationship to be able to fully come together and, and support the child. So my my hope is that you know, as a collective group, we can start to think about family engagement and think about how we really view parents. And parents can really think about, do we understand things like secondary trauma? Do we understand the emotional toll of what it means to be an educator these days? Can we have empathy for each other? Can we have compassion for each other as the adults, again, so that we can do a better job of coming together as a team coming up with collaborative problem-solving approaches, not only to support the student, but to create a better school system for our whole society, right? I mean, this is the most one of the most important things we do as a society. And you know, Jim Sporletter was on this. He, matter of fact, he was the very first guest on this podcast. And um, I think it was on the podcast, or it could have been a personal conversation. I don't remember, but I know he isn't gonna care if I share. I asked him, what's one of the things that you wish you would have done differently? And he said, I wish I would have looked at parents in the same way that I looked at students, not in what you just described as like, why have you done this? Or why are you doing this? Or a lack of empathetic connecting and really get to the point of how can we support this family unit? And I think that that is such an important key because when you understand intergenerational transmission of trauma, when you understand you know, the epigenetics of how historical trauma works, depending on communities you work in, right? There's all kinds of layers. And at the end of the day, nothing is accomplished by blame and shame, whether that's towards parents or whether that's towards kids, right? So I think that's so powerful when we have these conversations of, listen, we've got to keep this as an operating system. We operate in a trauma-informed way. We don't do trauma-informed education. It's who we are. It's how we operate as a school, as a community, as a, as a district. So what do you say to uh, educators? Because I know I hear it um, when I speak or, or even on social media. I'm not, I didn't get into teaching other than to teach. So why should I have to, support and worry about families. Now, I hope no I hope nobody ever says that in my school, <laughs> but it's said and I hear it often unfortunately. What do you say to that when you hear an educator or have you heard an educator respond in that way? Oh, yeah, definitely see it all the time, have heard it all the time. Um and and I get it. It's a huge ask to be an educator 
in today's world. I mean, it, it's, and if you've been a teacher for a while, it's, it's has to have changed tremendously from when you started out and went to school to, to the state of the world in, in the modern era. And it's gotten nothing but harder in the past few years. Right. So I totally, I totally get that. And the thing is, you know, when you talk about intergenerational trauma and epigenetics, that's definitely a huge part of it. But like you said, there's so many layers and, Looking even beyond that, you know, our understanding of racial trauma, of systemic trauma, and we so quickly look at um, things that might happen in the home, and that's certainly valid. I mean, the reality is we're a very abusive society, both on a macro scale and a micro scale, and that's a very difficult thing, but it's something that we don't talk about, right? We don't confront. We The only way we can really handle that is to try to just break it down and individually kind of blame the people in our, our sphere. That's a, a natural response to a topic that's as difficult as this and a country for us that has such a um, difficult racial history that has um, things that have gone on historically, historical trauma on all types of communities, sexism, racism, ableism. I mean, we're, we have so much work to do and we're not really in a great starting point, right? To, to do this work. We're really trying to do this while we're digging ourselves out of a hole that we've inherited um, all of these things. So I, I totally get that, but you know, that, that ship has sailed, that this is what it means to be an educator. This is what it means in most jobs um, these days is that we are part of the larger ecosystem. And we do now understand these things and we, we have to act upon them. We, when we, we have to do better now that we know better. And like I said, it's, it's so hard to really absorb all of this, all of these layers of trauma um, and all of the things that children and families bring to school when they show up. It's a huge job. It's a huge ask. It's a huge undertaking, but that gets right back to where we started, which is then okay, instead of being adversarial, how can we partner together to become a, a stronger force to, to make these things happen, right? That has to be um, the, the only way that this is gonna, gonna change. So uh, I put a, I just put a comment up here from Sarissa and, and I do wanna say too that I, I'm, I'm thrilled that this podcast is listened to for people all over the world. We have people in Australia, there's someone in Puerto Rico, and they are connecting to what you're saying too. So what I what I want to say is, this isn't a U.S. issue. Um, and Puerto Rico, I know you're part of us, by the way. I'm, I'm fully aware. So you, I'm including you in when I said it. But this is an international issue that these things are happening across our globe. And so I think this is such a bigger. It's the the work is so big. But Sarissa asked a question here, right? How do we collaborate or create a collaborative culture when some or many people have bad intentions that are misunderstood and do not want to collaborate, right? So what did you do if you want to go back? Because I know you kind of covered that a little bit. But what do you what do you suggest to parents who are approaching those, those walls of, uh, well, we know better or no, that's not how it's going to be done? What do you give? What do you tell parents? How do you motivate them and keep them? on this path of advocacy. Yeah, it's it's really hard, especially when you're still, if you're still in an environment um, that that's really adverse, right? When you, If you're still in crisis and you're fighting that fight too. I was fortunate because I was really able to 
and, and very privileged to be able to, to get out of um, my environment and, and try to start building. Um, but for some people, you know, that's, that's not really an option. And so you're just fighting a battle on many fronts. So what I would say is I've tried to think very strategically. So my professional life, I work in marketing. So it's always about sort of the, the what's the overall strategy and what's the messaging and, and how can I leverage things? And that has translated well to this sort of thinking because sometimes, you know, if there's a barrier, maybe it's a person, a teacher or a principal, then you have to sort of strategize. It's like, okay, I'm gonna give you your shots. Okay, you, you, you didn't do what I need you to do. So now I'm gonna start going around you. Maybe that's going above you. Maybe that's going to somebody in parallel with you, or maybe that's going out and finding my people and finding my troops and we, we storm the castle. And that's very difficult because it's not going to, it's not a quick response. It's not a short-term response. And day by day, you have to send your child to school and, you know, you're, you're still trying to deal with that. And you have that, that feeling of, you know, I don't want the phrase falling behind, but you, you see that sand, you know, going through the hourglass while you're trying to kind of work on this, this larger strategy. But I would say definitely try to connect with other parents. And that's, that's part of it is for there to be an environment where parents can come forward and say in a non-confrontational um, way, we need support, who can support me? And so it doesn't come across as we're blaming the educators. It doesn't feel like the educators are blaming us, but we're just able to say, I need help, I need support. This is my experience, what can I do about it? So whether that's going to another parent advocacy group, maybe it's thinking outside the box and finding those groups in your community. You know, Maybe it's the NAACP, maybe it's the League of Women Voter. I mean, the issues that we touch whether it's graduation rate or school to prison pipeline or the achievement gap, these are issues that so many people in our communities care about. And so we just need to find ways to build relationships with them and, and form an alliance with them. You know, the trauma-informed umbrella is so big. I love in our trauma-informed community network or TICN, you know, we have folks from juvenile justice, we have housing, we have the faith community, we have nonprofit communities. And, you know, if you go to something like ACES Connection or PACES Connection now and start finding people in your communities, you can do it um, by subject area or do it by location or start your own, you know, just go on Facebook and say um, trauma informed, um, you know, San Diego, whatever the case may be. If you start talking about it, you can't go more than a few minutes without finding other people that care about this. And that's the thing. When I started doing presentations, I was like, I don't care if it's three people there or 30 or 300, because afterwards, I guarantee you, somebody's going to come up to me and say, this is my niece, or this is my goddaughter, or this is my neighbor, or I'm a coach, or I'm a Cub Scout uh, troop master, or I teach um, at my, I teach Bible study. I mean, this is everywhere. You can't turn over a rock without people starting to raise their hands. But what I found was often somebody has to be the first one to kind of raise their hand or to just start the conversation. You know, five years ago, I would kind of even stutter when I would say trauma. You know, we weren't using that word um, conversationally or broadly the way we do now. And, you know, people would kind of flinch or react when they would hear me say that. It, it took a while for me to feel comfortable, comfortable using that word in public or in a room full of people or next to my name. It was a process. It, it did not happen quickly. You know, we're talking about years that that 
I've been on this this journey. Um, but but when we start being more open um, and, and vulnerable about our experiences, other people are going to want to connect with you. And there's power in that connection. We can start to support each other. We can back each other up. We can storm the castle. We can make phone calls. We can do whatever we need to do. Or we can just simply say, um, you know, sometimes it's, there's certain magic words, especially in like IEP process. And you, you start, you say, well, try saying this or, you know, trigger this process. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of things that we can do to, to support each other. It's, it's really hard. And I, I feel so much for people in that situation because I, I get it. Um, and, you know, anyone listening tonight, reach out to me. I, I will be happy to give you any um, suggestions that I, I might have, or just let's start connecting and, and, and starting some, get something started. You know, I, I can't agree with you anymore because to be honest, it's why this podcast is here. I started the Trauma Informed Educators Network Facebook group on in hopes of connecting to other like-minded people because it, it was a smaller community then. And then that Trauma Informed Educators Network is now 26,000 people from over 100 different countries. So I'm like, I need to start a podcast so I can talk to more people, right? And it is about that network. And you are 100% right, is that it takes a disruptor spirit. And I put up there uh, just a minute ago the hashtag that I have been using for a long time. This is about disruptors uniting and saying we want better um, based off of what we know about science, neuroscience, you know, the impacts of trauma on health and various outcomes. We want better for our kids in all avenues, education, health care, juvenile justice system, all of the systems. We want better for our kids. And so I, I have a question for you because I posted something in the network today and apparently it didn't go over well with some people. And, and I, I found it interesting. And it was that um, that a traumatized brain, uh, traumatized, uh, hold on, I'm actually going to look it up, Jenna, because I want to get it exactly right. And, and, and it was something about that a trauma brain doesn't think logically, it, I, it thinks um, in survival, right? And people got upset saying, well, are you saying that people who've experienced trauma don't think logically? And having, and having been a foster parent, I served as one for two years, um, I, I started thinking, oh, man, maybe I should have put more words to that because we've got to be cautious on some of the messaging, too, that we put out there because it can come across as being different. So what would you say to somebody that would say, no, wait, people in who have experienced trauma, whether a child or adult, does think logically. So why would you say that they operate in a survival brain? What would you tell somebody like that from somebody who has been through uh, uh, trauma, just as I have and many other people? Yeah, I personally don't have a problem with that. I think it's important that people understand survival mode. I mean, that is such a huge part of it to move away from that, you know, intentional, you're, you're trying to be this way to moving from, um, you know, uh, won't to can't. So I, I don't have an issue with that. I can definitely um, understand how, you know, it, it feels to people, um, especially when you're in a situation that is so difficult, you don't ever want to feel victimized. Um, and that's, it is another layer that makes this really hard too, because it, how do you, um, how do you work with parents in a way that is respectful, that is empowering, 
that acknowledges what they've been through, um, but doesn't victimize them or doesn't make it seem like their experiences are, you know, we're, we're voyeurs or we're um, like trauma, you know, we, we get a high of hearing off of other people's trauma. So it, it's, it's not easy, um, but the more we can talk about it, the more you get different kinds of people in the same room, right? If I'm only talking to other parents and you're only talking to other educators, we can't have these difficult conversations. We can't move it forward. So we gotta we gotta keep mixing up the rooms. You know, it's great when we have conferences for educators and, and that's amazing. But we've been doing that for a couple of years now. And I feel like as a movement, then what's the next evolution? You know, the it's the unite part that's really important. How can we break out of our silos and start cross-pollinating a little bit more? You know, the thing that has been so amazing to me was I've been able to work with people in my my district and even around the state who are really accomplished. I mean, the first person I presented with has a PhD and I was like, I can't present with her. I, I don't have an advanced degree, much less a PhD. And she never, ever made me feel that way. She was like, we're here. We're both here from the family voice. We're not here as this is my credential and this is your credential. And it, it took a, it still takes a long time for that to kind of sink in. And when I present with other people who are educators or who are advanced, you know, professionals, I, I still have to figure out what to say because when I introduce myself, I want to make it clear that I don't work for the school system, that I'm a, a parent so that people can hopefully identify with that. But I never want to say I'm just a parent, right? Because that, Absolutely, what we're doing, but but that that's the natural thing that we say, right? We stand up at, at a meeting or we go to something and we say, "Well, I'm here just as a parent," and so I haven't, I, I still haven't fully figured out what I'm what I'm saying, right? There's no like acronym, there's no initials after your name, like PE parent expert or like longtime parent, you know, and everybody else has all these initials after their name and all of these credentials. And it's just my name. And I'm like, I'm here as a parent and I'll, I'll start to say just a parent and I'll literally bite my tongue um, because I don't ever want to reinforce that notion that we're just parents, right? We are the experts of our own families. We're the experts of our own children. And when other people perceive us that way, we sense it, we feel it, and we obviously respond differently. And that's when that's when the magic starts happening, right? And that's when not only does it happen, like I said, for that child, but that's when we can keep evolving this movement um, because we're 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 mixing it up. We're we're really truly walking the walk of being trauma informed, not just for students, but for families and even for educators as well. This has to go both ways, right? It can't just be from parents to educators or educators to parents. I really want to bring up what, what Peter has said here, because I think it's so important. And I don't just want to say in regards to survivors of childhood trauma who are now professionals share. I share openly how hard being a parent, period, is to, to parents in my school. When I sit down, I say I can run a school of 350 kids it seems easier to me than parenting my one child sometimes because it's like I have patience with other people's kids, but my own, I get worked up. So I think it's it's humanizing all of us because I have I have degrees, 
But I'm going to tell you what, I wasn't a good student. I had experiences as a child that definitely had an impact. But most of all, I'm a human being. And I know my experiences aren't any more important or any different than anybody else's experiences. But at the end of the day, being being vulnerable is really important in these conversations for those who are comfortable with it. And I think, like I said, I sat down with the parents and said, I, I'm going to be honest, parenting is the hardest thing I've ever done. And they, you could see parents with the confusion on their face, like, but you're a principal. <laughs> right. But those things don't actually, they don't align sometimes. Um, and I think some of those conversations are really important that parents see educators as fellow parents and we see parents as fellow parents sometimes before we see them as parents of a student at the school, just mutually seeing each other as parents who are doing the best we can. And I think that's so, so powerful. Oh, definitely. And and 100%. And I, I can imagine how much parents love hearing you say that. And it makes me think of a, a, a program, um, a home visiting program, parents as teachers, right? You know, uh, parents are a child's first teacher, those very, those most important formative years, right? And so, you know, think about our role as educators and as, as teachers too. And I totally agree. I, I'm not sure if it's that it people think it's unprofessional to talk about something that's more personal, but I love it when our principal talks about his kids. I love it when he brings his kids to a PTA meeting because he's like, I have to take them to soccer practice after this and I have no idea how to feed them in between, right? And, and it, it, it's, it is, it unites all of us, like you said, in that, that humanity. And I think that's completely the direction that, that we need to go. And like I said, not only are parents um, educators, but we want to be learners too, right? Like we, a lot of us are involved in education and we're very active in schools because we, we love to learn new things. We love the, the field of pedagogy, you know, everybody wants to learn something new. That's why we come to different things. So how many ways can we um, see each other in that, that same light going both sides from parents to, to educators and educators to parents? Definitely. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, um, ironically, my assistant principal just responded because we just had this conversation today of we've got to sometimes see each other simply as humans. And, and I mean, with parents and, and, having an empathetic side of what do you need right now? What can I do right now? And sometimes I, I've learned that parents simply come to my office because they have, they need somebody to, to talk to. And I, I, I think that's one of the most um, appreciative things that I experience at school when parents are comfortable enough and vulnerable enough for me to stand in a space with them not to help them, not to solve their problem, not to feel sorry for them, but to stand in a space and say that it's tough. So what can I do right now to stay in this space for you? And I, I've had many of those conversations and I feel honored in that space that we can share that humanity because I'm going to be honest, I've stood in a space where parents have stood in that space for me. And, and I've had that com that vulnerability in conversation. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we have to look at as a community. When you talked about we are a punish-driven society, we are. And I say punishment, not consequence, not discipline, whatever other word, but punished-based society and shaming 
is such a um, uh, such a is such a use that uh, that it's just remarkably unbelievable um, that we continue to use these archaic ideas that we know do not work. So, Jenna, if people want to, because you said it, hey, reach out to me. If they want to reach out to you, how can they find you? Can they find you on social media? How do they get a hold of you? Because I have a feeling that there's going to be people reaching out to you. So, as I said, I've done a lot of this through the PTA and I'm always meeting new people. So along the way, I'm trying to kind of get my own um, group started just so I can collect people outside of that process. So still very much in the early stages, um, packed promise to address childhood trauma. So you can email me at Jenna at PACTUSA.org. You can find me um, primarily I'm more active on Facebook. Um, and that is promise to um, address or Twitter, which is packed underscore two, I believe. Um, but yeah, I would love to um, really, you know, be kind of the, you know, how can we be the advocacy arm of this um, movement and how can we bring that family, bring that family engagement work forward from here? And because it's needed. And, and I can tell you um, as, as somebody who, and, and I know you're the same way, Parents tell me all kinds of things as I travel across the country and they tell me stories and um, we have a lot of work to do. And by we, I mean educators and, and systems. We have a ton of work to do and we have to have the voice of our parents. We have to listen to our parents. We have to validate what our parents, um, uh, the, the value they bring to us as educators. Um, and I think if people need to connect, they should absolutely reach out to you. Um, and, and, and I appreciate your time here. I cannot thank you enough. Um, I've been following your work for a while. And when I told people I was going to be interviewing you on this podcast, they were like, oh my gosh, not a better, there's not a better person to talk to um, in this work. So I thank you. And if, for those of you who are out there who would like to uh, follow this work, it's the Trauma Informed Educators Network podcast. Obviously you figured that out because you're here. Um, and you can also follow the Trauma Informed Educators Network group on Facebook. Um, and Trauma-Informed Educators uh, Network just as a Facebook page. And then as a reminder, registration is on sale for the Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference. Jenna, good news is it's not just educators. The first year we had somebody from the FBI, we had a whole police department. We had people um, from all sectors. I was blown away at the diversity of the of the um, uh, the fellow disruptors that united for our first one, and this is no different. Um, we've got people internationally presenting from all kinds of different sectors and areas. Uh, we've got uh, uh, forty eight presentations. We've got two amazing keynote speakers. One is an educator. One is not. And then we also have an amazing panel of experts that's going to talk about this work. So registration's open. It is July 19th to the 21st, 2021. It is a virtual conference um, because we are just not there yet to get to that point in which we can all gather. But I cannot wait till the day that that will come. So thank you for listening. And as always, please, please, please wash your hands.